friends, this is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this is episode 21. Why do you make stuff? No, really. <laughs> if you had a microphone and could answer me directly in this very moment, what would you say? You know, like, What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Without overthinking it, we're just having a conversation right now. What is the first thing that pops up into your mind? Is it, you know, revenue? Is it fame? Is it expression of a perspective or an idea? Is it aesthetic? Is it beauty? Is it fun? Is it healing? You know, I... I really do suspect that as many people exist on the planet, there might also be answers to this question. It's the most, it's like a very, not the most, that's hyperbolic, but it's very, it's a very interesting question. It's kind of like, how do you define love? You know, if you ask a hundred people, they'll give you a hundred different answers. And I wonder if the same kind of applies to this question. And I wanted to talk a little bit about it because as I toyed around with answering this question in my own way, I discovered that it really helped me a lot in my own journey making things. And it doesn't necessarily have to be painting, right? Like it could be any type of maker agenda will really fit under the umbrella of this episode, I think. Um, Why do we make stuff? Why do we do stuff? That is a question that I have discovered lots of people make it into their very late life without ever really even thinking about. And that can be problematic, you know, if you spend lots of time making things without considering that question, you can discover yourself at the top of some really awesome, successful mountain only to realize once you're there that you're on the wrong mountain. (laughs) Like that's a a metaphor that we hear often when we talk about climbing the ladders of success or climbing the mountains of success, that if you're on the wrong ladder, if you're on the wrong mountain, getting to the top can feel really depressing. And So I want to talk a little bit about why we make things because I feel like the ways that we answer that question can be profoundly healing. Um, And one of the biggest, maybe, I don't know if biggest is the best word, but one of the most prominent reasons that I realized early on in my career that this question was going to be helpful for me is that I knew that even if I failed (laughs) miserably, at least I was doing the thing that really made me happy, right? And so, but really, it's so hard to to even begin to answer that question. Um, It can feel paralyzing. I think, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I think a lot of makers can relate to the feeling of, wanting to start putting their work out into the public, maybe not necessarily monetizing it and selling it, but maybe just like putting it into a public sphere and seeing how it's received. And then they feel paralyzed by that decision because it almost can feel like you're in the middle. 
you're like at a starting line, I'm sorry. And you desperately, you like have like 30 paths in front of you. And it feels really terrifying to pick one of those paths because if you get halfway down the path and you realize it's the wrong path, now you're on the wrong path. How do I get to the path that I really want to do? You know what I mean? And so I want to talk a little bit about that feeling. And I want to talk a little bit about the stress that comes around with doing that because um, I think most makers can relate to feeling multiple times in their journey of making things that they've been very excited about a thing and then all of a sudden they're halfway into it and they suddenly second guess it 100%. And I want to reframe some of those fears around the question, why do I make stuff? And I want to tell a story a little bit about that and then dive in a little a little deeper. So before we do that, this episode is sponsored by the Drawing for Comfort art series, which is Drawing for Comfort During Uncertain Times. It is an eight-week art series starting October 22nd. And I'm so incredibly thrilled to share this with you. We already have a sweet little group that's registered for the course. It is eight sessions of many, many different tools and techniques of using process-focused art making to relax and to come home to yourself when things are really out of control. And this series is not just full disclosure, it's not super woo. It sounds like a woo name, right? It sounds like we're going to be sitting there having a drum circle and talking about our feelings. I'm sure some feelings are going to come up because we're making art and art is always connected to emotions, but explicitly the class is not about that at all. The class is very process focused. So we're going to be immersing ourselves in processes that are very comforting, mixing colors, creating marks, layering, over and over and over again and building an artwork um, by masking things and stacking things and getting messy and trying and playing and experimenting and sharing. It's going to be ridiculously fun and I can't wait to just dive in. If this is something that you're interested in doing, please check it out at BeccaJBorelli.com or B-O-R-R-E-L.L-I and um direct message me if you have any questions because i want to answer them if this type of course is out of your budget or not accessible to you at this time we have we are always going to be offering scholarships at the moment um our scholarship spots are full we were able to offer four scholarship spots i'm so thrilled about it but um please stay tuned for future classes because this type of thing is going to be happening more And it's because of people like you um, that allow me to support other people in their journey through making. So why do we make stuff? (laughs) That's a question we'll be talking about in this series, I bet. Um, So I want to tell you one of the first times I considered this question. And I was younger than you would imagine. um, But I think a lot of people are around this age when they first face this question and maybe they don't face the exact question of why do I make stuff but they face the question of what is going on here and that's when kids enter junior high 
I think, and this is just from my experience teaching public school, but I think preschool to fourth and fifth grade, life is pretty, you know, in a bubble. The thing that's really fascinating about development with kids, (laughs) y'all, is that kids don't consider other people. And that maybe that and that can be why they're profoundly frustrating sometimes, right? Because they only think about their needs first. It's also why they're so incredibly sweet because they don't get stressed out about other things going on in the world. They're just focused in the present moment. And we're all we were all this way, by the way. We were all born with the capacity to be very much present in the moment without spending inordinate amounts of time projecting in the past or the future. And then usually around junior high, that kind of shifts and it's probably, you know, hormones and all the things, but it definitely is around that time that kids start to think, oh man, is this shit? What's, is this what like being human is about? Cause I'm not sure I'm into this. <laughs> There's all kinds of stress that comes up. And for me, one of those experiences was my first junior high art class. When I was in, so in in my hometown, junior high started in sixth grade. I think everywhere is different. Um, And so I was 11. And I remember this experience so well because of how truly excited I was. I, of course, you know, switching schools, if y'all can remember this period of time in your life, I know some people block it, as you should, (laughs) because... Junior high is not usually a cakewalk for most people, but I was obviously very nervous to start a new school and, you know, not to have my closest friends necessarily in classes with me and suddenly be around hundreds and hundreds of new kids from all of the different elementary schools coming together into this one junior high school. But in spite of my nervousness, I was so thrilled when I got my schedule for that year because my first class, my first period of the first semester was art. And I thought, this is an omen. Like, I don't even, I don't think I even, you know, knew what an omen was (laughs) when I was 11. But if I did, I would have called it an omen. I was thrilled. I thought this is a perfect sign for a brand new year. And on the first day I came in to art class and it was, it was so freaking cool. Um, I remember just having this feeling like, Dorothy, you're not in freaking Kansas anymore. (laughs) Um, You know, elementary art, the elementary art room had been, you know, like little tables, little chairs that could fit, you know, five and six year olds, right? Um, Glitter, macaroni, all that kind of shit. And then, but not this, not this room. This room had horsehair paintbrushes. This room had professional colored pencils. This room had murals painted on the walls by students. This room had real posters of actual artists, alive and not alive. (laughs) Um, Principles and elements of design plastered everywhere. It was it was a real, it felt like a real art studio. And I, I remember just looking around this room before class began, before the bell rang, thinking, I'm going to freaking love this. This is what I had been waiting. I didn't even know I was waiting for it, but this is what I was waiting for was a serious art class where I wouldn't be, 
you know, gluing cotton balls onto a penguin, you know? And then to like make this environment even more outstanding, the teacher comes in and he's a man, which I I think, you know, my entire elementary school life, I'd only seen one man teacher. And immediately I was just surprised by the fact that there was a guy art teacher and he was the absolute quintessential art teacher. Flannel, tucked into jeans, kind of like a little bit of a belly. He had like black, long, longer hair. <laughs> um, and suspenders. <laughs> he looked covered in, like his clothes were always kind of covered in paint or art supplies of some kind. And he was really gregarious and funny and I thought I like this guy this guy is gonna be cool like I I can't wait for this class and pretty quickly the the school year kicked off especially in art to a great start you know and I think everything probably would have continued in an RA, you know, trajectory, except I quickly discovered that loving things and being excited about things, especially school and teachers and making things wasn't cool. Or at least that was what I perceived when I was 11. A lot of the kids in my art class were like kind of like bullies, like a little bit angry. They would interrupt the teacher. They would laugh. They definitely didn't take art seriously. And I quickly felt like, oh, this isn't good. I look like a weirdo now. And I, I'm not sure exactly why that was so problematic for me. I think all people are different when it comes to their desire to fit in. For me, I was already so painfully different than everyone else. You know, I was like by by and far the most shy kid in my neighborhood group of friends growing up. And I always kind of just felt like the odd one out to begin with. And here I was in this brand new environment, desperately not wanting to stick out. And so I would say about two or three months into my first year of junior high, I started to really rein in my, you know, any externalized expressions of joy (laughs) and just played it cool. And, and like, I loved on the class inside, (laughs) just didn't let anyone else see it on the outside. And about, uh, and this, this continued for throughout the year. And then, you know, the semester ended and then I transitioned to choir or something else. And then, then came seventh grade and seventh grade, I ended up getting the same art teacher. And I remember coming in that second year, ready for some art. We had our first class. And at the end of the first class, he pulled, he pulled me aside. He said, Rebecca, come here. I want to chat with you about something. And he said, I really feel like you love art. And I said, yeah. And he said, all right. He said, well, he said, 
I'm kind of wondering if you would be interested in doing something a little bit more independent. He said, we'll we'll call it like an independent study where you can explore things that you're really interested in. You can use any of the materials in the class and then we can have um, back and forth on any questions that you have and you can kind of explore things more at your own pace instead of having to stay with the rest of the group. And I mean, y'all, what a freaking phenomenal thing to say to a kid. Um, this was obviously an art teacher that was really going above and beyond. Um, especially now after I've taught a bunch, (laughs) I know how hard it is to offer and provide individualized programs to kids, especially when you are working so hard just to keep your head above water with like the general, um, requirements of being a public school teacher. And he, looking back, he really must have seen something, um, valuable in offering me such a fan fucking tastic opportunity. I should have been thrilled. And instead I remember, you know, my stomach just kind of plummeted because I thought there's no way I, I don't want to, everyone in the class is going to like tease me. They're going to be like, Oh, there's the cool art special girl. that gets to do what she wants. And we have to do this boring shit over here. And why is she so special? And all I wanted to do was be like everyone else. I didn't know how to tell him no. So I said, okay. And I'm sure he noticed that I wasn't thrilled. But but we agreed to start. Um, I wanted to, I told him that, you know, I wanted to start exploring drawing more, especially with pencil. This was like what I was really into at the time. And he suggested I pick a subject matter to study. And so I chose <laughs> puppy dogs. I was 12. <laughs> so, you know, I started doing this series of, of drawings. And and it was so ridiculously uncomfortable. I was clearly not into it. I was trying really hard, but I was very, like, lackadaisical about the whole thing. I And I, I think I... And one... This is how it kind of manifested in this first series. I did a series of drawings of dogs and I was referencing photos to do them. And the the te- my teacher kept pulling me aside and he was saying, okay, well, this is cool, but one of the things that I'm noticing is that you're being really timid with using a full range of value. He said, so why don't you take this grayscale here? He handed me a grayscale and go back and try to lay in more of a range of a grayscale from light, light, light to dark black in these drawings of dogs. And it was pretty comical how, like how this experience played out is probably less important than why, but I feel like compelled to tell you how it played out anyway. So I went back to my seat and I laid some more dark values down and I took it back to him and he's and I was like, what I really wanted him to say was, this is good, you can do what your friends are doing now. That's what I wanted him to say. And instead he would say, Rebecca, this is better, but you're, I, he's like, I can tell you're just really holding back. He goes, really? You can go crazy with the dark darks if you want. So now I'm frustrated, right? I go back to my seat and I just like freaking laid black like all over these drawings. Like, you want dark values? Here, I'll give you dark values. I take them back and he kind of just gives me this look and he says, okay. 
go ahead, go back to your seat. He's like, you can work on whatever you want to work on. But I wasn't going to get off scot-free from this, right? He, at the end of class, he, the, the bell rings, I get up to leave and he goes, Rebecca, stay for one second. And I just, I, I was, I was probably, I didn't realize it then, but now looking back, what was happening was I was getting to my tipping point of being treated special. I didn't want to be kept after class. I didn't want to have to, you know, do these special projects. I just wanted to make things with my friends because making anything was fun. And that was why I made stuff was for fun. And this teacher was coming at it from a whole different angle. His perspective was this person is really good and it would be a detriment to her learning if I hold her back. And his reason for doing art was to get better as a skill, as a marketable quantitative skill, something that's measurably better, you know? And he sits me down and he looks at me straight in the eye and he says, what's going on? And if you can imagine like the most moody, hormonal 12 year old, that was definitely like how I was acting. I, I just stared at the table and didn't say anything. And he said, he said something next that I was not ready for him to say. He said, I think you want to be like everybody else. And I, it's, it's hysterical y'all. Like he hit the nail on the head and instead of feeling comforted that he noticed that I felt like exposed (laughs) and I wasn't ready to talk about those feelings with this random art teacher, not even close. And He said, I think you want to be like everybody else. And I think that you are purposefully just, you know, blowing off this independent study opportunity. And I just stared at the table and, but now I'm like starting to tear up. And for those that know me really well, like my husband will tell you this. I don't cry when I'm sad. Weirdly, when I'm sad, I, I get just like really like depressed and quiet. (laughs) Um, I cry when I'm angry. I was so mad that this person was putting me in this position that I didn't want to be in. And then, and then like doubling down, you know, there was instead of like reading the audience, you know, he was doubling down on like some tough love. Like I want you to own it. I want you to own the fact that you want to be like everybody else. And I was, I wasn't ready to own it. Not even close. It was 12. (laughs) And it was the most unproductive talk ever. I'm sure he was ridiculously frustrated. All I did was cry. I wouldn't look at him. He finally dismissed me in total frustration. And our relationship was completely destroyed after that. I I didn't look at him. I didn't have any desire to listen to him. I thought, you know, I felt kind of betrayed, to be honest. And and I kind of made him pay for it (laughs) Um, by sort of refusing to have any type of interaction with him for the rest of my junior high time. 
And it wasn't until a few years ago that I started to think about that. Like what a weird experience to have. And then also what a weird experience to suddenly remember in your mid thirties when you're starting to work for yourself. But I realized that one of the things that happened during that experience was that I had started to get the impression from this authority in the art world. I mean, to an 11 and 12 year old, he was an absolute authority on art making. And the message I got was, uh, making art for fun isn't enough anymore. You are not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. And you have a capacity that other kids don't have, and it's your responsibility to build it into something that is better by other people's standards, right? Like by by professional standards, by adult standards, it is your job to grow your skill. And to to not do that is irresponsible. That was the message I got. And and you know what's super interesting is there's not it's, I mean, you could argue that that's not a terrible message. In some ways, depending on, you know, the goals of myself and society and this teacher, you know, that's maybe a very valuable message to have. For me, it ended up being a little bit damaging. And I'm wondering if anyone else listening to this can relate. Because what I took away from that experience was, you're, you're not you're not here to love this shit. Like this is, it's not, you know, you're getting to be an adult now and now it's time to be responsible with your talent. And that word responsible has so, can anyone relate to this? It has so many connotations attached to it. So many assumptions attached to it. Responsible is almost a dirty word sometimes when you think about it because responsible Um, implies that there's lots of other people's expectations um, sort of swirling in the mix, you know? Who am I being responsible to? And it certainly wasn't myself because if it had been myself, I would have chosen to work with my friends. And this was a pivotal time for me intellectually around art making because everything changed after that. I went into high school and I never quite had, you know, an awkward experience like that with any of my art teachers in high school. But one of the things that I carried with me into those four years um, was that making art for myself was done. That now it was time to be serious and build a portfolio. And high school art classes are absolutely structured to perpetuate that belief system, right? I I remember sitting down with my freshman art teacher and him saying, okay, no more fairies, Borelli. This was like what I love to draw, right? Fairies and unicorns and mountains swirling with mist. He said, none of that. He goes, if you wanna get into an art school, you're gonna need figure drawings. You're gonna need still lifes. You're gonna need mixed media. And he just, I remember him going down the list with me and the message continued you're not, this isn't for you. Okay. Like, and when I say isn't for you, what I mean is it's not, it wasn't about me and my heart and my soul and the, what made me feel good. Um, can anyone relate to this 
narrative because it's not just in art you know it's everywhere this narrative that is really influenced by capitalism and by a market economy you are here to produce something of value for society it is not about you anymore um, can you make money will people like it if the answer is no then it's shit and that's such a harsh way of putting it um, but even even that really harsh message was being disseminated to me by the time I was in junior high, just in a much more watered down format. And I absorbed it like hook, line, and sinker. And I think, you know, I don't know if anyone listening to this is kind of nodding their head thinking, yeah, I can relate. Maybe it's not about drawing. You know, it could be about anything. But there is this point, I think, in everyone's progression in their making journey in life, whatever it is, that they run up against this cultural narrative that says, this isn't unicorns and rainbows anymore. Like we don't have time for that shit. Now you're here to be productive and you're here to be responsible and you're here to do something of value. And what an interesting narrative that is to imply that value is completely detached from the needs of the maker and it's really beholden to the to the markets um it's really interesting um and so i continued i i built up a portfolio uh just like my art teachers suggested i ended up getting um accepted to the three schools I applied to. I picked my favorite, um, which was Kent State University um, because of their graphic design program. It was one of the top graphic design programs in the country. And I was absolutely making that decision based on economic concerns. Uh, Being a fine artist was way too risky. And being a teacher was not serious enough And, but being a graphic designer in the the late nineties, when computers and the the early stages of the internet were starting to take off was a really solid, you know, decision. And I had all of these really economically motivated visions sort of like flashing across my head of me being sort of like sex in the city like super glamorous like fashionable living in new york city working in a really cool design firm around lots of swanky neat artists creative types and that was that was what i believe success was by the time i went into my undergrad and I would have 100% ended up doing that too. I was so focused and clear on that being my path. And then I had sort of the, I guess I you could say I was kind of clotheslined <laughs> by my first class at Kent, which was called Intro to Basic Studio Skills, which sounds lovely. <laughs> but... It was this really, really treacherous class um, in like high functioning, detailed representation, realistic representation, graphic representation. Um, there were I thought we would be just like diving into computers immediately, but the old school graphic design programs 
I don't even think the students would touch computers for two years. So this class was using all old school graphic design materials and the projects were what I would describe as barely art at all. <laughs> it was things like, I have this vivid memory of the professor giving us a printed letter E. It was a sans serif lowercase black letter E. It was like really thick and it filled up like a whole eight by 10 inch paper. And then he instructed us for homework that night to reproduce the E on another piece of paper without tracing it. We had to take this freaking ridiculous tool called a French curve, which is kind of like a protractor. It's like a plastic thing, like a protractor, but then it's got all these different kinds of curves around all of its sides. And so you would lay the French curve down on this printed E and you would find the part of the French curve that lined up perfectly with like two or three millimeters of this printed E. And then you would take it over to this blank white piece of paper and one like, you know, little segment at a time, you would reproduce the E using this French curve. It was like, does this sound fucking awful to you to like even just hear me describe that process because it was a hundred times worse doing it I swear I remember sweating like I was like sweating as I did this thing I was up till one in the morning I I still remember the weirdest details about this I remember going to bed at 1 a.m having to get up it was a 7 45 class getting up going into the class feeling so proud of this freaking e that I had just reproduced. It looked really, really good. And he had us do this thing. This was the thing that all of us did in the class when we would bring in things for critique. The letters would then be covered with tissue paper that was like mostly transparent. And it would like go like a flap over your work. And so then he would like, he would like lift up the flap to like scrutinize your work on the wall in front of the entire class. We're all standing around while he like looks at everyone's work. And in front of the class, he would take a red Sharpie marker. And when he would find mistakes in your reproduction, he would lower the flap on top of your work and circle where it was. So he wasn't like actually marking your work. And this process was mortifying for me, first of all, because I had enjoyed this experience in junior high and high school of being asked to do independent studies, right? Like I was used to being one of the best. And suddenly, not only was I not the best, I was probably one of the worst. I remember this particular assignment, just my letter E was just covered, y'all, in red Sharpie. It was just ridiculously embarrassing. And it didn't, I I basically like barely survived that class. I remember the professor pulling me aside and saying, Rebecca, you have a D. And really, in order for me to let you go to the next class, you need a C. And I remember just thinking, this is it, you know? And then he says, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. He goes, I can tell you worked so hard this year. So I'm going to push you up to a C minus, but I just want to let you know that this is like, 
you're going to have to really like drive it into high gear for the next class, which was intro to graphic design. Uh, because, you know, if you don't, then that'll be the end of it for you. And they would ask me to leave the major. And I remember leaving that meeting with him and immediately walking to my advisor's office and just bursting into tears because this wasn't even close to what I had originally started doing art for when I was a little girl. And I would, I didn't know it at the time. I just knew that I was in despair and I didn't, I couldn't put words to it. Now looking back, I realized that's what it was, that there was nothing even remotely close to why I was making art in this scenario. What was I, what was I doing? You know, getting these terrible grades, doing this thing that I was miserable at. Like why, why was I even bothering? And this advisor listens to me and he was this very sweet man who I think was really used to freshmen crying to him about graphic design because it was a militant program meant to absolutely weed out people like me. And he listens and he says, Rebecca, have you thought about art education? And I thought, oh, please don't push me into that fucking program. <laughs> because art education was for people that couldn't hack it in design, right? Teaching those who can't do teach that bullshit phrase is perpetuated even now in our culture. We dehumanize teachers all the time through that narrative. And I just, I remember just like kind of slumping in my seat and saying, I don't know. And he goes, look, he goes, you don't have to sign up for that major. He goes, you're a freshman. You have time. He goes, this is the intro class. He goes, it'll fit into your schedule next semester. He goes, why don't you take this instead of intro to graphic design and just feel it out. He's like, no commitment, just try it out. So I did. And I left, it was called, it was called intro to kindergarten through sixth grade art. (laughs) And I left that first class knowing I was meant to be a teacher. It was like goosebump inducing. And the reason that I, you know, I, I wasn't sure then it was very elusive. It was just this gut feeling. But looking back, I realized one of the biggest motivations for me switching to, from design to education was to vindicate future Becca's from having to suffer the same fate, right? Because I had been sold this sort of capitalist lie about why it was important to make stuff. And maybe I could teach other kids, you know, and get to them early and get to them young and give them a different narrative um, from which they could make stuff from. And, And that was really, I mean, that was like really, really meaningful to me for a long time. But... I, I got a pretty good, I don't know if y'all are like even grokking this story at all, um, but I think for all of us, we've all been through the public education system or private school education systems, charter school education systems. We've all been through some type of formal education. Even homeschooling is formal education. And in all formal education, embedded in every aspect of that system are 
ideas that prioritize capitalism and production and a market economy. And really quickly, I started to realize that I wasn't going to be able to express the things that mattered to me most about teaching art in, a, in an industrialized system like that. And it was really hard. I ended up leaving in 2010 um, to go to grad school. I thought maybe I could find some support in grad school. I remember <laughs> I remember sitting down with the professor of the class where I was supposed to choose my thesis topic, my research topic for grad school. And she says, okay, Rebecca, what is it that you want to study? And I said, this is what I want to research. I said, when I was a school teacher before coming to Austin, I began to notice that some teachers had this magical ability to influence students' behavior um, without saying or doing anything. And I use the example of one of the first grade teachers. I've talked about her in stories on Instagram where she would just walk into a room and her class would immediately get quiet and she wouldn't have to say anything, right? That there were some teachers that just commanded respect energetically and some teachers that could scream and yell and stomp their feet and the kids would just not listen at all. I was fascinated with what are the differences between these two types of teachers. I thought this was the coolest research topic. And I remember my professor looks at me and she says, Rebecca, you can study that if you want. She said, but I just need to be honest with you because I wouldn't be doing my job if I weren't and tell you that if you decide to research this, you will be fighting an uphill battle here at UT and also if you decide to go into PhD work later, which at the time was a goal of mine, she goes, no one, no PhD program is going to like, okay, this type of thing. It's like just way too out there. The things that were really, really valued when it came to university research on education was, was STEM, science, technology, engineering, um, things that were really connected to to capitalism chugging along, to a production economy chugging chugging along, you know. Um, it was pretty. It was pretty devastating, if I'm being honest. <laughs> why do we make stuff? You know, why do we do we make stuff? Is it for a paycheck? Is that why we make stuff? Is it for someone else's approval? You know. Is it to make someone else happy? Is it to win an award? Is it to get a good grade? What are the reasons we make stuff? And the thing that really bothered me about this sort of progression from junior high to grad school was that nobody was talking about the reasons that we first make stuff. Like, if you ask a two-year-old why they make stuff... They don't give a shit about, <laughs> about making money or getting famous or even someone else liking it. They really don't care. Little kids make stuff because it makes them feel good. And specifically, it makes them feel good in this very focused way. Um, most kids will sit down to create things 
when they need to come back to themselves. And when I say come back to themselves, I mean um, sort of like mindfulness. Um, I used to teach in a preschool for a little bit before I was an art teacher. And preschools, pre- this pre- the preschoolers' days were blocked in this really interesting way where there would be like an hour of, of organized time where they would all be doing this thing the teacher had planned. And then there would be a break of at least 30 minutes, sometimes more, where they were um, doing organized free play. So there would be like, you know, 10 to 15 options of things that they could do, but then they would self-direct. Maybe they would be playing in the table full of beans (laughs) and creating little worlds in there with cups and uh, measuring spoons and all the things. Or maybe they were in the corner setting up a restaurant and play acting together. Maybe they were building a little universe with blocks and the carpet. Maybe they were sitting at a table with paint. And these parts of the day were ridiculously important because it allowed kids who were approaching sensory overload from having to be in the group, listening to teachers, going outside of their comfort zone. Um, It allowed them an opportunity to come back to themselves, work at their own pace in something that they were interested in and focus. And this is the original reason we make stuff to come home to ourselves. And it's not hippie and it's not woo. It's ridiculously important for our brains. (laughs) Even, you know, even as disheartened as I've been about the way that artistry is valued um, in our culture, I'm I'm very encouraged by some of the changes that I've seen in the last five years even. I, for example, Facebook <laughs> hires art teachers to come in, y'all, and give their engineers a break making stuff. I just spent, just two days ago, I spent an hour making inspiration books with full-grown ass adults, (laughs) okay? Like folding paper into little books and putting feelings and words and letters and shapes. And these sweet engineers were freaking out. And all of them were talking about how good they felt at the end. Why is that? Why is that? It's because that's why we make stuff. That's This is the primal reason that we make stuff. And I... I'm not sure if everyone listening to this is nodding their head. Um, Maybe not. Maybe some of you have always been entrepreneurial. Maybe some of you were three years old and thinking about ways that you could sell your artwork. I'm guessing if that's the case, you probably had really entrepreneurial parents that put that idea in your head because I don't think that that's an internal motivation naturally for little kids, but maybe it was. One of the things that I've learned is that gross generalizations from me are never a great idea. And so if I'm making one right now, please take it with a grain of salt because I could be very well wrong. But I know from over 20 years teaching two-year-olds up to retirees when it comes to art making, one of the primal reasons we do make stuff is to come home to ourselves. And this is an inner battle for a lot of creative people when they're thinking about monetizing their work. 
Um, it's really scary to think about taking the thing that makes you feel better, that heals you, and putting it into a market economy. That just is like a terrifying thing to do. And it's not unreasonably terrifying, by the way. It's really reasonably scary to do that because it's very possible that capitalism will destroy your love for that thing. It's very reasonable. And I think that was why I had to get out of graphic design because for me, and and this is not the case for everyone. In fact, one of my really close friends graduated from that exact graphic design program and it definitely didn't destroy her love. She still makes art all the time. But for me, it was. And I think that this kind of threat just manifests differently for everybody. So for me, the graphic design program really threatened my love for art making. That junior high, uh, that junior high art teacher really threatened my love for art making. For other people, it's, it's different stuff that can be quite threatening. And so... In some ways, our teaching was really protecting me from having to face putting my work out there. I didn't want to let any of these really toxic systems touch my art process at all. And, and teaching was a way for me to completely keep my making pr- precious and protect it. And then interestingly enough, I was too exhausted to make stuff anyway from the rigors of teaching. (laughs) Um, And so it wasn't, I would say, until 2011 that this whole sort of indoctrination process around making stuff finally came to a head. I was in graduate school. I was entering my second year of the program and I took a class. I've talked, I talked about this in episode one. I took a class where I was required to make art as part of my final grade. And it was in that time that I started to think about how I made art when I was just doing it for myself. And Answering that question at age 33 gave me a lot of confidence to start making stuff and putting it out there. And the main reason that it mattered so much to answer that question, I talk about this in episode one also, is that it didn't matter if anyone liked it. Um, All of that pressure was gone. And one of the really liberating things about if people don't like it, is that you don't have to like, like if you're doing something just because you like it, then even if people don't like it, it doesn't matter. You'll still keep doing it because the reasons that you're doing it have nothing to do with anybody else. It's like the the reasons why little kids paint. Like you go up to a two-year-old and say, well, that's cool, but I'm not going to buy it. And the two-year-old will say, well, whatever, <laughs> like that, like it doesn't even register to them because they're like having too much fun. And I think that a lot of times it's easy to get into this place. Can y'all relate of forgetting that, um, of we really get so tied up in this idea that, our art is worthless 
if someone else doesn't buy it or value it or like it. And that is, you know, a toxic sort, it's a toxic situation. Um, One of the ways that it can manifest in a toxic way is that it really shapes the types of things that young makers will attempt to make. I remember meeting a young maker early, early, like seven or eight years ago when she was just getting started. And as she was developing her style, she, I, I quickly discovered that she had picked a style that she thought would sell and it was a, and it would have sold because it was definitely successfully selling with lots of other people. The problem was, was that it wasn't her style and people are sophisticated creatures and they can sense authenticity a mile away, especially now in this really performative culture that we have online, um, where everyone is acting and performing in a more homogenous way than ever. Um, someone being themselves <laughs> is ridiculously noticeable in that kind of environment. And someone not being themselves is really unnoticeable. And she really struggled to get noticed by anybody. And I remember that that really, really wounded early on her impressions of herself as an artist and a maker because she had chosen a style that she thought would sell. And because her goal was to sell, she also was then placing high value on other people's perception and value of her work. And when no one noticed her work because it was so homogenous and, and, and because it was so not hers, like even if, even if the style was a style that belonged to like hundreds of other artists, if it also truly was her natural expression, I think it would have worked. Right. Um, and this type of situation is completely normal. Um, I went through that process, I think five or six times in my twenties, I would just, I was taught in school to do things that would sell and I pick styles that weren't my own and they, and they never really stuck. And there's nothing wrong with that happening. If you pick up, dust yourself off and try something new, um, But what ended up happening with this particular maker was that she just really doubled down and she just said, well, I'm going to be one of those artists that's just going to keep doing what I'm doing and eventually it's going to work. And that's not, (laughs) that's not a good model if what you're doing isn't authentic to yourself. And I think that this mistaken Um, approach to making stuff gets a lot of young makers into trouble because they've been taught by the very school systems that brought them up that the quickest way to have success is to determine what other people want and then to execute it. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with doing what other people want. I'm, I'm sure there's some people here who are like, you know, I... I started doing something that was like really popular and a lot of people wanted it and I'm really successful and I'm also really happy. And so your metaphor is bullshit. (laughs) Um, And that's, that's awesome. By the way, I know there's quite a few makers that have that happen. 
Um, the key is that you love it. You're happy doing it. Um, you would do it even if you weren't successful. It's um, the people who end up getting to the top of the wrong mountain that I worry about in this type of scenario. And this fear of getting to the top of the wrong mountain really freaked me out when I first decided to try to branch out on my own. And it absolutely kept me from branching out on my own. I I thought about branching out on my own after grad school, but I was just way too terrified. I thought there is no way my sweet, precious art making that fills my soul and gives me so much joy and brings me home to myself could survive the rigors of capitalism. That I just would be miserable. And so I took a job painting signs at Trader Joe's because I didn't know what else to do. And while I was at Trader Joe's, one of the artists there connected me to a maker who changed my life in one simple YouTube video. And it was about why do you make stuff? And in this video, he talks about, and I'm going to leave the link in the show notes if you want to listen to it, because it's such a neat video. But in this video, he talks about how paralyzing it can be to choose. Why do you make stuff? What path do you want to go on? Right? And he talks about what I mentioned earlier in this episode. Sometimes it can feel like you're at a starting line. And if you pick the wrong line and you go down the wrong path, you're fucked. And he said, that's a lie. That's not how it actually works in the real world. In the real world, you're standing inside of a circle. And any path outside of the circle is progress. Any path. And in all likelihood, any path is going to be the wrong path. The first path you pick will definitely probably not be the one that you end up like having wild success on later, wild happiness in later. He goes, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that you get out of that circle. Any step forward is forward progress. And this, this shifted everything for me. And then he gave a second tip, tip and this, the, the one-two punch of these two bits of advice was honestly what caused me to have the courage to leave Trader Joe's and to try working for myself. Doing art the way that I wanted to do it for the reasons that I truly wanted to do them, which was to come home to myself and to be happy. He said, your art is precious. He, he gave a name to the thing that I always knew, right? That my work was precious and that I didn't think it could withstand the rigors of monetization of other people's scrutiny. And then he said, your job is to protect the shit out of it. He goes, I know that seems counterintuitive. He said, a lot of people will tell you to throw caution to the wind, jump off the cliff, build your wings on the way down and just see if it's going to work. He goes that sort of you know, leave home and go to the city with $15 in your pocket story is super romantic. He goes, I know. He goes, but if you do that, you are putting a tremendous amount of stress onto the thing that you love the most. And the stress that you're putting on the thing you love the most is the stress of paying your bills. And there's nothing that will kill the love that you have for making faster than the stress of paying bills. (laughs) This was the first person I ever heard 
really describes some of the biggest fears I had around trying to take the reasons that I made stuff as a child and marry them with the reasons that I wanted to make stuff as an adult. And he went on to say, if you want to protect your love for this thing, he goes, one of the best ways you can do that is to take a job that is completely different than the thing that you love and use that thing to pay your bills. And not some of your bills, but all of your bills. And then, and then you will slowly on your own terms without stress of anyone else's input because you're not trying to sell it or show it to a single other person yet because you can start building your stuff on the side and you don't have to listen to anyone else. It is going to be a hundred percent your creation and it will be the thing that makes you so, so happy. Um, the thing that you would do if no one paid you, that's what you should be doing. And you know what the beautiful thing is, is no one is going to be paying you <laughs> because you're going to be doing and paying for your bills using a totally different job with a totally different energy so that when you come home after paying your bills at this other job, you will have this perfect energy left over to make the thing that you love on your own terms. And you can slowly monetize your passion from the protective cocoon of this place. And I had never heard anyone talk about bringing forth art into a market economy this way. And it changed my perspective because I wanted to make stuff for these really, really primal reasons rooted in my childhood. But I had been taught in junior high and high school and college that those reasons were silly. And here was this guy saying, no, those reasons are literally why you're here. (laughs) You're here. The reasons that you made stuff as a kid, the reasons that you love to make stuff, that's literally why you're here. And your job is to protect the shit out of that at all costs. And, and, and that's when I, and that's when I left Trader Joe's and I took a job waiting tables, totally different energy from making art. And within a year and a half, I was full-time. It was really crazy. As a coloring book artist, who in their right mind sits down and plans to be a coloring book artist? That shit only can happen on accident (laughs) when you're just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what happens. Um, I don't know if any or all of this story resonates with you. Um, I was thinking a little bit about the format of this podcast this morning, and I was thinking... You know, sometimes if I'm being really candid with y'all, sometimes I wonder, you know, maybe this sort of rambling storytelling format isn't helpful. Like, you know, some of my very favorite art podcasts don't do this. You know, most of my favorite art podcasts, you know, sit down and give these like very clear defined recipes for how to do things like, you know, how to, (laughs) 
you know, successfully monetize work, how to value yourself with a client, you know, the legal aspects of art making, like it's very sort of, um, you know, five steps to <laughs> creating an online website or whatever. Like I, I sometimes wonder if this format, you know, does anything. And what I am hoping this particular episode might have done at some point is that you might have seen some of your story inside some of these stories. Because I don't think that any of these experiences that I just described are unique to me. I think a lot of people run into the same sort of shit. Why do I make stuff? Am I here just to like make a paycheck with my paintings? Is that like, is that like literally the reason? And maybe, and maybe that is the reason. If that's your reason, and please, please don't let anyone make you feel bad for that. Least of all, some chick in a podcast, you know? Um, what is the reason that you make stuff? Because whatever that reason is, whether it's making money or like, you know, healing your freaking soul, <laughs> If you're doing the authentic reason for you, for you, then you, you, you know, that's when you start to see some of the beauty in the pursuit of this type of making, right? That's when all of the stress and the struggle of bringing forth something that's totally different starts to feel worthwhile. Um, I hit a point a couple years ago where I thought, I think my business could blow up right now and I would feel okay because I'd gotten to experience what it was like to do it. And I realized that was, that was one of my biggest goals was just to see if I could do it because there's this huge part of me that thought, I don't even think I could do it. And then just getting to that point was so ridiculously rewarding that I realized all of my fear about failure kind of went away. Like when the pandemic hit in March, I thought, well, maybe it's been a good run. Maybe this will be the end. <laughs> and then it wasn't. And I'm glad. and I'm so grateful for that. But I really think, you know, I would have been, of course, I would have been devastated. You know, nobody wants the thing that they work so hard on to die. But, you know, some of my biggest goals have already been realized. And, and, I don't, and I think that when we pick the the authentic reasons that we make stuff, um, that's when we we end up being okay, right? Like in March, the pandemic hit, and I thought, well, maybe I'm not at the top of the mountain, but I'm on my mountain, and that's success in and of itself, right? Just being on the mountain of your choosing is success in and of itself. Um, just getting to to find the base of your mountain <laughs> is success in and of itself. And um, maybe maybe that's stressful to some people. Um, it probably would be stressful for me too if I were hearing someone else talking about mountains. Um, 
I would say at least a hundred times a year, <laughs> like every few days <laughs> up until maybe November of last year, I worried I was on the wrong mountain because, um, the truth is we don't just make stuff on one mountain. We're constantly traversing many mountains in our, in our day-to-day life. And, um, in some ways that's really freeing to recognize that. And I just saw a firefly outside the window. I wonder what that means. I feel like it means something. Maybe it means this is a long episode, Burley, and you need to stop now. It's really late tonight. I actually wanted to record this quite a bit earlier and then I didn't get around to it. So I am going to take sort of a leap of faith and say that in some, at some point in this rambling episode, hopefully you were able to take some gems away that were helpful for you. Um, usually that's how these end up getting recorded. I sit down and I say, all right, what do they need today? <laughs> and then it comes out, however it comes out. Um, yeah, yeah. That in and of itself feels a little bit woo-woo, you know? Like, who makes stuff without a plan? <laughs> how irresponsible. <laughs> but it's it's definitely how I do things best. And so here we are, messy, saucy, you know, figuring it out as we go episode number 21. Um, I also, as we're wrapping up, Um, I want to thank you for, I got the most amazing messages last week for Jordan from Growler Domestics for episode 20. Um, he's the first like formal guest to the podcast. I know Jason came a while back and Jason's definitely a guest, but Jordan was the first guest that doesn't, you know, feel obligated because he lives with me. (laughs) So, um, he was pretty cool to listen to, wasn't he? I got so many cool messages from people saying they enjoyed his um, his stories and stuff. And so if you haven't gotten a chance to listen, please check it out. If you are interested in communicating directly with Jordan, one of the benefits of being a patron of the Patreon account for the Secret Sauce podcast is your ability to direct message questions for guests that come to the podcast and Jordan will answer them for you. So if you have any questions directly for him, please send them over to me. Consider subscribing to the Patreon to have access to do that. It's like one or two bucks a month, y'all. It means the world to me. Um, So please consider doing that. Um, If not, thank you for your support in any capacity. Thank you for sharing this with your friends. Thank you for giving it a five-star review. Thank you for listening because even those simple things do tremendous wonders with helping get this podcast in front of other people. Um, Until next time, I love y'all. Peace.